You know, our, our memories are, are really interesting. Uh, it, it is incredibly interesting how our memories work. Uh, because some of you, or some of us, um, can't remember what we had for breakfast today. No, I'm trying to think. Oh, I had, I had a donut, because we had donuts with grown-ups for, for parents of, of K-2 kids here at SFCA. So that was not a very good breakfast. Don't copy me. Um, so we, we can't remember what we had for breakfast, but I can remember what I had for a snack 30 years ago. It's, it's weird how our brains work. And what's interesting also is what triggers our memories. Um, sometimes something you see will trigger a memory, but even more powerful than sight is our sense of smell. And, and even when we hear things. For example, um, when I smell Old Spice deodorant, my mind automatically goes back to 1998. We were living on Stewart Street in Welch, West Virginia when I was a teenager and my dad gave me my first Old Spice deodorant. Um, <laughs> Every time I smell allspice, that's exactly what I think. I can remember where I was in my room. I remember the house, um, 1998. I, I, I don't know why, that's, that, it just, it's, it's ingrained in my memory. Um, and then there's sounds. Um, maybe sometimes a song. You remember, if, you, if you hear a song, you can go back to where you first were when you heard that song. Uh, many of you may or may not know, but I grew up a missionary kid in the Philippines. Uh, we lived there uh, off and on for, I was there for nine years. My parents were there for 12. Um, and if Jonathan were here, I'd pick on him, but I, I always say my parents, they're missionaries with ABWE, which is the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism, and they were real missionaries because they had to raise support. You know, I like the spoiled IMB people. No. <laughs> um, so every four years, and we love our IMB missionaries, every four years we came back to the States on a furlough and we had to raise more support for the next four-year term. So every other weekend when we were back here in the States, we would go to a different supporting church. Um, at, at that point, we were stationed out of Rochester, New York, so all the northeastern states, uh, we would be traveling to going around to different churches. And in each church, we would have a time to be able to do our little presentation. And that was six the first time we did that, and then about 11 the second time. And I was always part of the presentation. We had little bamboo instruments we brought from the Philippines. I had a little nose flute that you literally play with your nose. Um, and I would, we, uh, but before we would go up there, they always had a, a, a little slideshow, a little presentation, and they always played the first line of a song as their intro. They always played it. Um, it, it was in Tagalog, the language of the Philippines, and it goes like this. We'll see if you, can, see if you know the tune in English. You, you better. Tunay kang matapat Dios naming ama What song is that? Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. So every time I hear the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, I remember those furlough trips, going to churches and doing those presentations because my parents could tell, quite honestly, that God has been so faithful to us. Over, over the 12 years my parents were in the Philippines, over the nine years that I was brought up there, God always provided for our needs. There were times we didn't know where they were coming from. Um, and having to raise support, sometimes you didn't. If you looked at your checkbook, um, the support wasn't there. There wasn't enough for the month. But God always provided. And so as I was thinking about, about this evening, about talking of God's faithfulness, um, it reminds me of that. God, God is so faithful. And you know, unfaithfulness, the opposite of faithfulness, unfaithfulness uh, seems to be the status quo in the world today, isn't it? It, it is one of the greatest sins that is just widely accepted. If, if you look in the business world, uh, a man's word isn't worth anything anymore. You have to have a contract. Um, in social life, the sacred bonds of marriage are easily tossed off like an old garment. Uh, 
Um, if it, even, even in churches, you know, hundreds, thousands of ministers who we trust to accurately and truthfully proclaim the word of God attack and deny it from the pulpits. And in our personal lives, how many times have we been unfaithful to Jesus Christ? How many times have I been unfaithful to what I know about Scripture? How many times have I been unfaithful to the missional calling that I have been given as an ambassador of Christ? And that's why A.W. Pink said this, How refreshing then, how unspeakably blessed, to lift our eyes above this scene of ruin and behold one who is faithful, faithful, faithful in all things, faithful at all times. That's why in Deuteronomy 7, 9, as God is giving Moses, um, what, as Moses is remember, reminding Israel how God gave them the Ten Commandments and all the others, he said, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God. So as we talk about faithfulness tonight, um, Thomas Chisholm wrote, Great is Thy Faithfulness, in 1923. Um, and as I was reading through Scripture, and there's so many verses that talk about God's faithfulness. Uh, and that's why part of tonight's going to just be a barrage of Scriptures just to remind us of how Scripture tells us how God is faithful. But as I was looking at different passages and verses about faithfulness, I think that when Thomas Chisholm, uh, in 1923, I think he did the same thing. I think he went through and he was studying his copy of the Word of God and he was writing down verses that talked about God's faithfulness. And because he's a lot more talented than I am, he came up with a song with a hymn to talk about it. But when I looked at the verses of the hymn again, just to remind myself about it, those three main verses are exactly the three points that I came up with. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through those, those, those three stanzas of Great is Thy Faithfulness and look at how that relates to what God's Word says about God being faithful to us. Um, how many people know the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness? All right, so we're going to have a Bible study and, and, a choir, and a hymn sing tonight, because we're going to sing it. So we're going to sing the first stanza, and then we'll sing the chorus, and then we'll stop there, we'll talk through that, and then we'll see how well we can do this. We'll see if we get kicked out or if I never get invited back. If we do, that's okay. So the, the first stanza of Great is Thy Faithfulness. Are you ready? We're going to sing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changes not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. You all know the chorus. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord unto me. If you think about the words of that first stanza, one of the first things that the Bible teaches us is that God is faithful to himself. God is faithful to himself. There's three of them. If you want to, if you want to be alliterated, God is faithful to his person. They can all start with P. Um, so God is faithful to, to himself, to his own person. Um, 
In the book, The Attributes of God, A.W. Tozer says this when he talks about God's faithfulness. He says, in studying any attribute, the essential oneness of all the attributes soon becomes apparent. We see, for instance, that if God is self-existent, he must also be self-sufficient. And if he has power, he, being infinite, must have all power. If he possesses knowledge, his infinitude assures us that he possesses all knowledge. Similarly, his immutability presupposes, presupposes his faithfulness. If he is unchanging, it follows that he could not be unfaithful, because that would require him to change. Any failure within the divine character would argue imperfection. And since God is perfect, it cannot happen. So because of the fact that God is immutable, that God does not change, he is, by consequence, faithful. When we are unfaithful, we are inconsistent with, with, with what we say we are going to be doing or what we say we are. But see, with, with God, it's different because all of God's acts are consistent with all of God's attributes. And never do any of his attributes contradict each other. But they all work together in harmony and perfectly blend into each other. All that God does agrees with all that God is because doing and being are one in, in, in Jesus Christ, in our Lord, our God. And that's why verse after verse, just to name a couple of them, uh, Lamentations 3, 23 and 22 and 23, which is where Chisholm gets the chorus for his song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The Lord's loving kindnesses, or his mercies in some translations, indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Psalm 36.5 says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 89.8, O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O, o Almighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. Psalm 119.90, Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. In one of the verses that I hold dear because Unfortunately, sometimes it describes me. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In that last little phrase, Paul says, for he cannot deny himself. Because who God is will never contradict what he does. They're always saying God is faithful to himself. He will never contradict any of his attributes. Um, and we're going to look at that later on also when we talk about the love of God. Um, the love of God is not opposed to his holiness or his justice or his wrath. It works in perfect harmony with it because God is faithful. But not only is God is faithful to himself, to his person, um, but the second stanza of Great is Thy Faithfulness tells us that God is faithful to his word. Once again, if you want your alliterated points, God is faithful to his promises. So he's faithful to his person and he's faithful to his promises. The second stanza, uh, if you don't remember it, is the one that says, Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature and manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. I had to, see, I had to read it. I had to remember it. So you ready? We're going to sing the second stanza. That was just to let you know what to sing. <laughs> so summer and winter. Um, Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. 
Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. We can all sing the chorus again. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. God is faithful to himself, and he is faithful to his word. Genesis 8.22 is the verse that Shusam was reading when he wrote that second stanza. And that says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So help me out, Bible scholars. That was Genesis 8.22. What was God talking about in Genesis 8? Genesis 6 and 7 was the account of the? Good job, flood. So Genesis 8, right after the flood, God is talking to who? Well, there's only like one family left, so it does not... Noah. And this is right before God gives him the promise of the rainbow, the sign of the rainbow. And this is one of his promises. God is saying that, that the seasons, the springtime and winter and, and harvest and the sun and the moon, the days and nights, um, that's not going to cease until he comes back. God is promising and then later on, we see that God promises to never flood the earth, destroy the earth with water again. But God is promising that I will be true to my word. See, God, God cannot cease to be what he is because he would not be God. And being what he is, he will never contradict what he is. So everything that God, and since God is faithful and immutable, everything that he does and everything that he says will be and has to be faithful. It has to come to pass because, because of the person making the promise. Since God is faithful and he does not change and he is perfect, everything he says, everything he promises to do, he will ultimately do. So all of his promises, all of this, all of his word is faithful. It will never not come true. It will never be erroneous. It will never lead us astray. It will always accomplish God's purposes because he is the author. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, uh, the rest of the verse that we quoted, I quoted at the very beginning. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness to a thousandth generation with love to those who love him uh, and keep his commandments. He's a God who keeps his commandments. Uh, a couple chapters later, Deuteronomy 9, verse 5, said, then God is talking through Moses again up to the, the children of Israel. And he says, it is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is saying, I'm giving you this land, Israel, not because of you, not because you're righteous or because your heart is so noble. 
No, one is because these people are wicked, but also because I am going to fulfill the promise that I made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Because if I promised it, I, being a faithful God, will fulfill it. Later on, when Solomon was dedicating the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, and he's, and he's praising God, and he says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise, of, of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses' servant. So Solomon once again is saying that God is so great and we praise God because he has kept everything, he has fulfilled everything he has promised, and not one word failed of all that he promises. Not one word. If God says it, it's sure, it is true, it will come to pass. The prophet Micah, in Micah 7.20, he says, Micah spent some part of his, of, of his book talking about how he realizes, as all the, all the prophets do, that the nation of Israel, the children of Judah, don't deserve God's mercy. They don't deserve God's grace. They have completely turned their back against him. And what they deserve is punishment and condemnation. And yet, Micah sees the person of God, the character of God, and he knows that he is a loving God, a compassionate God. And so at the end of his book, he starts praising God for the forgiveness that we have through, through God. And he says in, in Micah 7.20, he says, You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Micah says, God, I know that, that we don't deserve any of your blessings. I, I get that. I'm first to say that we don't. My people have sinned. We have turned against you. But God, I praise you because I know that in you there's forgiveness. I know you will be compassionate. I know that you will save us. Why? Because we're good people? No, we're not. We get that. But because you are a faithful God. And you told a long time ago our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that this is what you would do. And God says, I know you, that you are faithful. God, I praise you because I know you're going to do it. And it's mind-boggling to him as it is to me that we don't deserve it. We don't deserve God to be faithful and loving to us. But we can praise him because he is, because he has promised to do so. Balaam, a lovely prophet for sale, Balaam. Even he couldn't help but praise God for, for the faithfulness of his promises. Um, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. After, once again, Balak was trying to get him to curse the children of Israel, and, and Balaam really wanted to. He tried awful hard, and yet God, since he's sovereign, said, uh, I don't think so. So these are the words that came out of Balaam's mouth. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? You know, that, that sometimes describes us, doesn't it? How many times have we said, oh, I'm going to be there, you can count on me, and we forget, or we just don't. Sometimes our word is not faithful. But Balaam is telling Balak and us, it's, it's got a man. Is God a simple man that can say something and then change his mind? He says, has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will not make sure it comes to pass? And the rhetorical answer is, no, he won't. We can cling tightly to all of God's promises. 
we can hold dear our hope because the God who made the promise is faithful. And since he's a faithful God, his promises are faithful and will be and are true. We have no reason to waver in doubt. We have no reason to think that God has forgotten or God cannot or he will not or he does not listen. Since God is faithful, his word, his promises are faithful. So let me ask you, do you know his promises? Do you know them? Because the only way you're going to know God's promises is if you spend time in his word. This is how we know God, and this is how we know what he has said. And the more we know God, we know that the more we know what he said is true because he's a faithful God who said it. We cannot grow in our Christian walk if we're not spending time in his word. And, and oh, the blessings that are ours when we, when we study his word and we see these promises and we say, God, that's for me. And I, I sure don't see it right now, but I, I know you're going to do it because you said so. And I can trust that because I can trust you. God is faithful to his word as he is faithful to himself. And the third area that I can see that God is faithful, and there's more than three, but there's three in my notes um, for time's sake. So God is faithful to his person if we want peace. God is faithful to his promises. And God is faithful to his people. He is faithful to his people. And this is where we see it over and over again in our lives. The third stanza to great is that faithfulness. I'll read it just to refresh our memories. Um, it says, Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. You ready? Pardon for sin and the peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. God is faithful to his people. We're not, but praise God, he is. And if you think even in the, in the lines of those of that last stanza, pardon for sin. See, we can sing pardon for sin because God is faithful and forgiving. Help me out. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have pardon for sin because we know He is faithful and forgiving. It says pardon for sin in a peace that endureth. We have peace because God is faithful in answering prayers. Psalm 143, verse 1 says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness and in your righteousness. We can have peace because we know that God answers our prayers. He is faithful in answering prayer. 
God is also faithful in preserving. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, uh, talking about Jesus Christ in verse 7, says, Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How can we have a peace that endureth? Is that we know that God is faithful in preserving us. How many of you guys always are faithful, are always holy, you always... I'm not seeing any hands. Because we're not. You know, and we strive to, and we desire to. Um, but when we fail, and we fall, we say, God, what, I'm no good to you. I, I mean, what? I, I, I failed again. But what Paul tells us, what God tells us through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is that, that Jesus Christ confirms us to the end. He preserves us to the day of Jesus Christ because God is faithful. He called us into a fellowship with Jesus Christ. He's the one who preserves us to the end. Yes, we fall, but He's the one who picks us up. He's the one who will make sure the same thing that, that Jude said at the very end of, of, his, of his letter. Um, oh, come on, pages. I used to have my Spanish Bible, so this is an English one. Bear with me. Uh, Jude, verses 24 and 25, says, Now to him, to Christ, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Even when we fail, God is faithful in preserving. He will present us before His throne, blameless, righteous, because of Jesus Christ. That verse also says, the, the stanza always also says, we have strength for today. And the reason we have strength for today is because God is faithful in protecting. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. There is nothing more that Satan wants to do than to, one, keep people from getting saved. But he's smart, sometimes smarter than us, maybe more than sometimes. Uh, he, he, Satan has great theology. He has great soteriology. He knows the doctrine of salvation very well. He knows that once a person becomes a child of God, he is no longer in Satan's grasp. In grasp. He cannot take away his salvation. Satan knows that. So what he'll do once we're saved is he will do everything he can to make us ineffective, to make us unproductive, to make us fall into sin so we feel ashamed and guilt-driven to where we can't do anything for the Lord. But 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, But God is faithful that He will protect us from the evil one. He is the one who will not let Satan take away our salvation because we are in His hand. He protects us. And that gives us strength for today. We know that, yes, I may be under spiritual attack, but my, but my not falling, my standing firm, does not rely on my stability. It relies on God's protection in my life. God is faithful in protecting. God is faithful in sustaining. Sort of the same way of saying the same thing, right? A different way of saying the same thing. In 1 Peter 4.19, it's a different connotation, different context. He says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The context in which Peter is writing is, is persecution. 
And what Peter's saying is that by when you, when you live out your faith in Jesus Christ, when you are, are living out a clear testimony of the gospel with what you say and how you act and with the people with whom you interact, and if by living out what Christ has called you to live out, you are persecuted for his sake, God's the one who sustains you. He will sustain you. He's the one that gives you strength to keep on going when everyone is against you. He's the one that allows you to keep speaking when they tell you to shut up and to stop and to be quiet. It's God's sustaining power that helps us to go on when we're at the end of our rope and there's nothing else, humanly speaking, we can do. It is God's sustaining power that allows us to go one more step and to share one more time. It gives us strength for today. Um, we also have strength for today because God is faithful in trials. A well-known verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation. Um, in Greek, the word is paidasmos, and I prefer the, word, the translation trial in this case. It's the same word for temptation and trial, but that's a different lesson for a different time. Um, so I'm going to use the word trial, even though it says temptation in some, some translations. No trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tried or tested beyond what you are able, but with the trial will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. I think it's a trial because we're not called to endure temptation. We're called to do what with temptation? Flee temptation. We endure trials. Um, that was free. But what, what the Bible is saying, what God is saying is this, is that when we're under trials, when those difficult moments in life come, when we, we don't see the way out, we, we don't see the prayer answered as I want it to be. We have sickness in families. and We, we have the wayward children. We, it, it's, it's tough, and it's testing, and it's trying, and I don't get it. God is faithful in those moments, too. He is faithful. And it says he's faithful in two ways. It says he is faithful because with the trial, that once again, if we believe that God is sovereign, is he not sovereign over my trial also? You better believe he is. He has, at the very minimum, allowed it. But the sovereignty of God says he gave that to you. He sent that your way. So God is sovereign over the trial. He says, but with the trial, he'll provide a way of escape. He will get you out so that you may endure it. So he, he allows the trial, he sends the trial, but with that, he already has an escape. He has a way out for you. And until he opens that door in the middle of this trial, he gives you the strength to endure it because God is faithful. God is faithful. That stanza continues saying, after strength for today, he says, we have a bright hope for tomorrow. We have a bright hope because God is faithful in providing hope. Hebrews 10, 23. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. When your life is surrounded by critics um, that think you're wasting your life because of what you believe and what you're doing. When you have real doubts about God, is, is, is this true? I mean, how, how am I supposed to believe that? 
And on a side note, and on a side note, God can handle your doubts. Don't be afraid to take them to Him. He's got big shoulders. He wants you to take your doubts to Him. But when when we're tempted to doubt, when we say, I, I just I, I don't know where there's room for hope. It says that we can have a hope that does not waver, because the one who promised, He is faithful. He is faithful. We have a bright hope for tomorrow because God is also faithful and sanctifying. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 say, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. So what Paul is trying to tell the church in Thessalonica is that, that God is going to be sanctifying you. At the moment that you received Christ as your Savior, the moment you gave your, your heart and your life to the Lord, He has begun a process of sanctifying you, of growing you in holiness, in impurity, and in Christ-likeness. And one day that will be perfected when we're in heaven. He says, but until then, you got to grow, and we're going to have ups and downs. But... God is the one who sanctifies. He says, he says, faithful is he who calls you. He's the one who called you to salvation. He's the one who saved you. He was faithful to do that and faithful also to bring it to pass. He's faithful in your salvation. He's faithful in the process of your sanctification until we're one day with him in glory. Um, there is bright hope for tomorrow because my sanctification, my growth in this Christian life um, does not mostly at all depend on me. It's my faithful God. So your strength for today, your hope for tomorrow, is not based on the stability of your perseverance in life. It's based on the fidelity of God. It's based on God being faithful to what He promised through His Word because He is a faithful God to Himself and it translates in faithfulness to His people. Someone said, and I have no clue who said it, uh, but he, someone said, who, he who abandons himself to God will never be abandoned by God. I like that. He who abandons himself to God will never be abandoned by God. Because God is faithful. We, we don't deserve it. We really don't. But he is faithful. So much more we could say about the faithfulness, but we need to leave some room for it to talk about you know, God's love. So the love of God... Um, I will fail. Just to be upfront, I will fail in trying to talk about God's love. It, it is impossible with, with human words to be able to express even the, the, the surface level of how profound God's love is. We're going to try in a, for the few minutes that we have, um, but, but you can't. I find myself agreeing with, with another hymn writer. Sorry, tonight's about hymns. We're not going to sing this one, but let me read the words. Unless you want to. Um, this is The Love of God, written by Frederick Lehman. Um, isn't that a good, that's a good hymn. It, when, when, when he thinks about God's love, he says the same thing. You, 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 you can't. I mean, we, we can start, but you, you can't. So he says, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, 
were every stock on earth a quill, and every man by, a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. He says, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. You can't, you, you can't exhaust a study of the love of God. We can barely begin it, let alone end it. Um, so, so tonight, um, let me just give us... No, let's come in a second. Turn with me, if you will. I'm sorry, I've been spouting out verses, but we're going to read them together now, a couple of them. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Um, if we were to take the time to look up each verse that, we, that I cited earlier, we'd still be here in, for a while, so... Um, I saved us that hassle just for tonight. But 1 John chapter 4, let's look at verses 7 um, until I decide to finish reading. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for, help me out, God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his, son, his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the, Lord, that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. And the chapter keeps on going to talk about love, and we might get to the end of that. But in both, in, both in verse 8 and in verse 16, it says the same phrase. God is what? God is love. God is love. Now let me tell you what that is not. That is not a definition of who God is. When, when John is saying God is love, he is not defining who God is. It's not saying, well, God, like, like some will say, you know, well, God is love, then that means love is God. And so all is love and all is God, and you have this wonderful pantheistic New Age religious nonsense. You know, no, it's not saying that this defines who God is. Uh, earlier it says in 1 John that God is light. So it would be contradicting if that was the definition of God. So what is it saying? What is John saying when he's, when he's telling us, he's teaching us that God is love? Well, I believe what he's saying is that he's saying that love is, is an essential attribute to God's being. It is sort of the, the qualifier, in one sense, of all his other attributes. In other words, God can do nothing except that he does it in love. Because God is love. Uh, when, he, when he redeems a soul, when he saves someone, he does it in love. When he condemns a soul, he does it in love. 
when, when, he, when he pours out his grace and blesses us, he does it in love. Hebrews 12 tells us that when he chastises or disciplines us, he does it in love. So love is sort of a qualifier for the other attributes. Everything that God does, he does in love. And what we talked about earlier is that God, God's attributes cannot contradict themselves. So if God were to do something that wasn't in love, then God would no longer be love. And when we think about the extent of God's love, and we see it here in 1 John 4, among many, many other places, um, the emphasis is this, is that God, the expression of God's love was what? What, was the, was the, what is the utmost expression of God's love? His Son, Jesus Christ. It was the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. So let's look at, just briefly, um, three aspects of God's love. There are so many more. Um, once again, we would drain the ocean dry. Um, maybe we can drain the parking lot dry tonight. Um, that'd be nice. It picks Wednesday nights to rain like this, doesn't it? So first, let's talk briefly about how God's love is eternal. God's love is eternal. Um, and when I, talk, when I see the eternality of God's love, I see it in two different aspects. First, God's love is eternal among the Trinity. Because... Love has always been present among the members of the Trinity long before there was ever any created beings. In infinity past, God is love. And God has loved and is loving and will love among the members of the Trinity. For example, Jesus said in John 14, 31, when he was teaching his disciples, he says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Jesus says, I, I, I love the Father, so I do exactly as, as He commands me. Which, sorry, another parenthesis, that's, what love, that's how love expresses itself, isn't it? Same, same book, 1 John chapter 5, I think it's verse 3. Uh, where are we? Verse 3. Yes, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're, they're, they're not difficult for those who love God. And Jesus is saying, I love the Father. And then later in chapter 17, verse 24, he's praying to God and says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is trying to teach his disciples that Jesus loves the Father, and the Father loves Jesus. And although there's not a specific place in the Bible where it talks about the Holy Spirit that way, we know that Jesus and the Father love the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loves both of them. There is, there is perfect love inside the Trinity. There always has been. See, God is complete and sufficient in and, of his, in and of himself. He has no needs that others outside of him need have to meet. He did not have to create anything in order for his love to be perfect. God has perfect love before creation. He did not need creation to show his love because that would mean his love was not perfect. And it is because God is love and has always loved for all of eternity. If that's not mind-boggling, I don't know what is. Um, but so, so love is eternal in the sense that it has always been and always will be among the Trinity. But it, I think it's also eternal in, in terms of its nature. Because in heaven, for all of eternity, we will have the joy of, 
of seeking after and learning about God's love, but we will never completely comprehend God's love. Even in heaven, with glorified bodies, we will for all eternity um, cherish the moments where we can explore and dive deeper into God's love, and yet we will never fully comprehend all that God is in His love. Um, but it is eternal. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 136, verses 1 and 2, and actually every verse in Psalm 136 says the last part of this, gives thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness endures forever, is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods for His loving kindness is everlasting. When God talks to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 3, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God's love is everlasting. We will forever search after and try to understand and find different nuances and joys in God's love when we're in heaven. But we will never fully exhaust our knowledge of God and His love. You know, the, the value of things are often um, based upon how long they last. That's why gold and precious stones are more valuable than wood and paper, because they don't last. What well, says that God's love is everlasting. It's everlasting. It is the most precious thing. It is the most valuable thing in the life of a believer. And we should dedicate ourselves to dive deeper and deeper and deeper into God's love. There's a, a definition we throw around here, not flippantly, but the, the one that we use to talk about love. Um, here's the pop quiz. How do we often hear love defined, mostly from our pulpit, but hopefully in our life groups as well, how do we hear love defined? Love is a, or an, Unconditional, there we go. Unconditional? Self-sacrificial self commitment to the well-being of others. Um, you think we made that up here, Emmerger? No, because it's copying God's love. That's, that's, that's who God is. That's how he showed his love. There's, a, there's an old story, uh, some of you may have, may have heard it, about a little boy um, whose sister needed a blood transfusion. See, the sister was uh, had, had a very... Um, rare disease, exactly like the one that her brother had recovered from earlier. But hers, her condition was far more advanced. Um, and in order to survive, she needed a blood transfusion. Her brother already had immunity in his blood because he had gotten over that sickness. And because both siblings had the same rare blood type, the brother was really the only possible donor. So the doctor explained to the family the situation, and he asked the little boy, he said, would you like to give your blood to your sister? Little Johnny hesitated. His lower lip trembled a little bit. Then he smiled and said, Yeah, for my sister, I'll give my blood. That's, that's a good brother, isn't it? So the day for the, for the transfusion came, and they wheeled both siblings into the room. Mary, his sister, uh, was looking pale and, and very weak. And Johnny was robust and healthy and Only when their eyes met did, did Johnny smile at his sister. But as soon as the nurse put the needle in his arm, his smile faded. And he laid there and watched the blood go through the tube out of his body. And there was silence in the room for almost the entire ordeal. When it was almost over, little Johnny broke the silence. His voice was 
a little bit shaky, and he said, Doctor, when do I die? It was only then that the doctor realized that Johnny misunderstood the whole procedure. See, Johnny thought that by giving his blood to his sister, it meant he was giving up his life. And yet he willingly did so. And I get how all human illustrations fall short of what God did. But in 1 John 3.16, it says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Christ is much greater than little Johnny. But humanly speaking, that kind of love that a little boy can have for his sister expounded into how great God is, is, is that's what God did. That's what Jesus did. His, we say love is an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of others. God's love is unconditional. It's, it's unconditional. God's love is eternal. We talked about that. God's love is unconditional. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. God tells Israel, Moses tells them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples, for you are fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept to the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh the king. Moses is telling the Israelites, you know, God God, is bringing, God brought you out of Egypt, um, and God made you his people. Not because you were some fantastic tribe that multiplied into a great nation. Not because you were so great in, num in numbers. No, no, you were, considering the people groups of the, of the earth, you're, you're not very significant. No, God brought you out. God showed off his powerful right hand because he loved you. Because he loved you. Not because you were lovable, but because he decided to love you. And if we look at the children of Israel, God forbid we look at ourselves, at what point did they deserve God's love? Even when God created conditional promises to them, if you do this, I will do that, did they for more than maybe a couple years uphold any of their promises to God? No. And yet God continues to love them throughout Scripture, and to this day, He's not finished with them. His love is unconditional. How about you? How about me? Do we deserve God's love? It's not a difficult answer. The answer is no. No, I don't. And yet God loves me. The, the, the whole way that, and first, and first John says that, and this, this is how we know that we love God. Uh, so I'm sorry, that's not what it says. Uh, in this, verse 10, 1 John 4, 10. In this, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son in propitiation for our sins. See, the act of God sending his son to die on the cross for our sins was not motivated by our love for him. What does Romans 5.8 say? That God demonstrated his love in this, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Two verses later it says that we were enemies, and God still reconciled us. God's love is conditional, it's unconditional. And then for us who are in Christ, it is unconditional in the fact that 
as we are growing in faith and growing in discipleship and being sanctified, we are sometimes going to fall. But even our failing and our falling and our sin does not annul God's promise to love us because his promise to love us in Jesus Christ is unconditional. And that's why Paul at the end of Romans chapter 8, verse 39, verses 38 and 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can do what? Can separate us from the, from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord, because his love is unconditional. God's love is unconditional. And then let's talk about just a, a last final um, characteristic of God's love. Um, going along with, the, the, with our definition of love. Love is an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of others. God's love is self-sacrificial. You know, our, our love usually gives when I know something's going to be given in return. Um, and we don't like to admit that, especially with our families. Um, but whenever your wife or your husband or your kids stop showing their love for you, the human tendency is to stop loving them back. Let them, let them, let them know what it feels like. You know, fine, you can do that to me. Well, I'll let you know what that feels like. I'm going to do that to you too. That, that's his human nature. And yes, God, God transforms us and he allows us to imitate Christ's character by not responding that way. Um, but God's love is so different. God's love gives of himself. He gave the most precious thing that he has is his one and only son. That's why the message of the greatest love text in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he, that he gave. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God, in giving him, God's giving, him, giving his son involved more than just allowing Christ to leave heaven and to enter in earth's history. But it was to die in our place. It was to take on the horrible debt of our sin. That's, that's sacrificial love. And it was no less a sacrifice for God the Son than it was for God the Father. And that's why Paul says in, second, in Galatians 2.20, Paul calls him the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. How many of you guys have heard about um, John Flabel? Have you heard of John Flabel before? Old Puritan writer. Uh, well, if he's a Puritan, he is old um, because they're not alive anymore. Um, but he wrote extensively on the character of God and God's um, love and his justice. He wrote a lot about the work of Christ on the cross. Um, and there's a little snippet of his writings. It's called The Father's Bargain. Um, and this talks about God's self-sacrificial love for us through Jesus Christ. Um, forgive the old English, um, but I think it's rich when we read it in this. And you're a really smart crowd, so you guys can figure this out. It's not that bad. Um, he says, here you may suppose the Father to say, when driving his bargain with Christ, for you. So this is his conversation. Obviously, he's, this is an allegory. He's making this up. This is what he thinks how the conversation could have happened between God and Christ, talking about how to save you and me. The father says, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ returns, O oh, my father, 
such is my love too, and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require them. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. Father, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. The son, content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. And that is so true. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that he, though he was rich, yet for our sakes, our sake became poor. That is a self-sacrificial character of God's love. He gave of himself. And how many people, when they hear the gospel, outright deny it, laugh in his face? How many of us who have received that love and have been transformed do not think that love worthy enough to take to my neighbor who knows him not. That's been me. But this is what God did for me, for us. For the last several weeks, we have been studying a, a myriad of God's attributes. Um, and we have barely begun to scratch the surface of who God is. We've barely begun. Oh, that, that we would dedicate our lives to, to plumb the depths of the character of God. That you in your own private prayer closet and Bible study would, would seek to know God better, know Him more, understand more of His character, His attributes. So what is, to wrap up, what is the result of studying the attributes of God? Um, how should these studies affect me um, as I grow to know God more and know Him more intimately? Well, I think there's, there's two obvious ways this should affect us and should result. First is that as I, I pray that we would fall into a greater awe of our majestic Creator God and that we would fall more in love with our precious Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that as we see who God is in His justice, in His wrath, in his omniscience and omnipotence, in his sovereignty and wisdom, in his faithfulness and in his love, I pray that we would, be, we would be dumbfounded in awe of how great God is and how he still loves me. And I pray that we would fall more in love with Jesus Christ, seeing how great an expression of, of his love he gives us. And secondly, I pray that as we know God more and learn more and more about Him, that we would have a greater desire to imitate Him in our everyday life. 
You know, there are some attributes, uh, attributes of God that we talked about that are incommunicable attributes of God. What does that mean? You can't communicate them? No, it doesn't quite mean that. It means that, that we are not called to imitate because we can't. For example, who can imitate omnipresence? Anybody here? I don't even know if I would like that. Uh, but there are certain attributes of God that are incommunicable. But others, such as his faithfulness and his love, are communicable attributes of God that we are called to imitate in our everyday life. We look at the example of Jesus Christ and say, God, you are faithful through your word and through what Christ has said. God, you call me to be faithful as well. Lord, let me be a man of my word that when I say this, I don't need to sign something or pinky swear for your little kids. I got kids, you can tell. Um, I don't need to promise, you know, I swear that I, well, no, my word is, my, Lord, let me be faithful. Let my reputation in my house be that I'm a faithful husband, a faithful follower, father, a faithful follower of Christ. Lord, I, I, I want, as I study your love and see how, lo how loving you are, that you are love, God, I want to be loving. I want to be willing to give without seeking anything in return. And, and as we study who God is, um, this will begin to help us think biblically as we glean wisdom from God's word through his Holy Spirit who teaches us about him. It will, as Paul says, um, to help us live missionally because the love of Christ compels us. It, it motivates us to share his story of grace and truth and love that we have experienced. It encourages us to give generously because we see how graciously and how completely he has given. And as we talked about tonight, it motivates us to learn how to love sacrificially because we see the supreme example of that in Jesus Christ. So my friend, if you are here tonight and you are not sure of your eternal destiny, I implore you to look at the cross. See what Christ has done for you when you do not deserve it, because I don't either. But lift your eyes to Christ, renounce your sins, and run to the cross. Embrace what God has done for you in love by sending his son to die on the cross for your sins. Surrender your life to the Lord today. And my dear brothers and sisters that know him and are striving to grow in, your knowledge, in our knowledge of him and to be found better stewards of his grace, I pray that that your, not that your, that the faithfulness of God and the love of God would fill our hearts to the point of overflowing in faithful obedience to the glory of God. May, may he be glorified through your life and through mine as we seek to do his will, as we seek to be imitators of Christ so that he would be glorified. Thank you.